will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional and real estate enthusiast, Blandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth. Welcome everybody to another episode of Leverage Addicts. I'm your host, Blandon Long. I'm with Mortgage HQ and Wealth HQ. And today I have Ziyang sitting across me. If you guys don't know already, Ziyang is one of our top mortgage advisors and he is one of the top advisors in New Zealand. And today we are going over the property tier list. And what we're going to talk about are 10 strategies. Now, normally with a tier list, why wouldn't you just download and look at, you know, what's at the end? Well, the reason why we're going through it is because we're going to give you all the details of how we think about all of these strategies and sort of how it stacks up against the three C's plus an extra two C's that we have not talked about on our YouTube channel just yet. The three C's we talk about in the property strategy, are number one, cash flow, two, a property improvement, so, or, or sorry, capital improvement. The third one being capital gains. And the two other C's that we're going to talk about is one, you know, your commitment level. How much knowledge do you need? How much time do you need to execute on the strategy well? And then this second C is to do with your capability, how much cash requirements you need, how much servicing you need. That is going to be taken into consideration. Now, there is no script to this. It's literally, we are debating here. So Ziang is going to pretty much, you know, have some insights on this strategy because he sees a lot of properties. And in the last 24 months, how much deals have you done? Can't even keep count, Lennon. <laughs> in the 24 months, I would say might be over 300 million. Probably around there. <laughs> <laughs> to do 300 millions of deals, you actually have to go through a lot of properties and a lot of analysis with the client. And so Ziang has a lot of experience. And also the reason why we're going for the tier list, because there's one thing in common about me and Z is like, we love to do gaming and property is like gaming sometimes. Times. And maybe Ziang, just to kick off, I'd like to know, you know, what sort of gaming have you sort of had in your life that you feel like it's a big influence? Gaming wise, probably started since I was a little kid. The first game that I played was uh, Pokemon. I think Blandon is pretty similar as well. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> Which color did you play? Oh, all of them. Because <laughs> when I was 11, yeah. blue came out, blue and yeah. red, like yeah. I think 10, 11. You would have been a bit older. A bit younger. A bit younger. Yeah, sorry. A bit younger. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. What I mean is like you would have newer color That's when, right. when you started. Yeah, I think when I started, it was uh, silver and gold and then um, went to Pokemon Sapphire. That was my go-to at the time. <laughs> Sapphire. Yeah, I haven't actually even tried yeah. that. I only, only played up to silver and then um, picked up Emerald later. Yeah, but you're too old, Landon. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am, I am. But later on, you yeah. know, obviously gaming translate to yeah. competitive sports. You yeah. were top tier table tennis player. Yeah, more or less. A lot of national competition, international competition as well. And so there's always some sort of tier ranking, especially right now. What sort of games do you play in your in your recreation? Uh, I play a, a, a bit of League of Legends. So, yeah. Nice. Um, you know, yeah, we, we, there's always a, what we call the meta, which is who is, you know, we, we have a tier like this as well, right? Who, who's strong at the time. There's always a, the S tier, A tier, B tier, C tier, D tier. So, you know, everyone wants to always play the, the S tiers. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. And, 
for me as well, you know, like I think one of the most competitive gaming period I did was sort of like the World of Warcraft and the Guild Wars period. The main thing was like the PvP drive, which is like people versus player or player versus player. And you're going in teams and you're trying to beat the other team. And why I find that fascinating is that in properties, you know, if you want to do these things well, you have to build the right team as well, right? You have to build the right team and then you go for the strategy that you can sort of repeat and get really good results. And so I have a on my screen a tier list sort of prepared with 10 strategies that we're going to go over. We've got double settlement strategy. We've got the land banking strategy. We've got the property trading strategy, new build strategy, house hacking or home and income, central do-ups, multi-unit strategy, regional cash flow, minor dwelling, and subdivide to build. Now, I want to change this tier list slightly because there's always a Uber tier. And then we've got the S tier, A tier, B tier. And we don't have deep tiers because C's get degrees. Now, the thing is, if you execute on any of these strategies, you are going to, you know, pass. That's the thing about properties. It's like if you hold it long term, you are going to pass. So there's nothing wrong with any of these strategies. But how do they sort of fit in on a, you know, the three C's that we talk about and a, and like a capability level, how much commitment you need, and then also how much knowledge you need. Those are the things that we're going to consider today. So let's start off with the first one. Double settlement strategy. What is this, Ziang? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so double settlement is essentially, you know, it doesn't require too much commitment in terms of your your equity or your deposit required. All it is is you finding a really, really good deal. You might ask for a long settlement date. You also might ask for early access to do some renovations if you wanted to. But essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a buyer before you, well, you buy a property, you want a long settlement date, and then you want to sell that house before you, well, you want to settle on the same day as when you, you sell it. So it doesn't actually, uh, you don't need to essentially settle the house. Someone else is settling it for you and you just make a margin there. So I would say, yeah, that's, did I miss anything? I think. I think sometimes you could have a short settlement, but you just need to find a buyer that would accept the deal on the other side. Essentially, you're just selling a piece of paper. You say, hey, I've got this property under contract and then you're selling that piece of paper to someone else for a margin because you bought it for really, really cheap. And so this strategy is relatively, I mean, for most people, very scary, but the risk, even though there's risk, the rewards um, are pretty high. So what have you typically seen in this strategy in terms of like how much people make on a per contract level? It really ranges. I mean, uh, you know, ranges from like not much to up to $100,000. Um, or even more, right? It just depends on your negotiation skills and the deals that you find yourself. Um, essentially, you're just trying to find below market value significantly, <laughs> and then you're just trying to sell it at market or even above market. So that's, yeah. yeah. So typical, I would say maybe I've seen 10,000, like yeah. if someone just doing yeah. a quick flip, 10, 15,000 is quite normal. Yeah. But if you're quite ballsy and you can go unconditional on the contract and then sell that on yeah we have seen in the boom market you could make three four five hundred k on a contract like that where would you rank this like now considering you don't actually have capital gains in the long term but it's instant equity because you're just making money on the contract yeah not much capital improvement. Maybe mm-hmm. if you got early access, yeah. potentially renovate the property and then on sale. Correct. Hard to say. I think it depends on the individual as well. For some people, if they're you know short on equity or if they don't have too much equity, this is a very, very great strategy for them. For a lot of people, they, they already have quite a bit of equity built up. So I would say 
Maybe around the A, maybe. All right, let's leave this one on the A tier. I, I feel around the same. It's not actual Uber tier because, you know, it's it's a bit risky, hard to execute. You know, you could lose money really fast as well. So, okay, so moving on, let's talk about relatively similar strategy would be property flipping. Because if you can't on-sell the contract, you might need to have a plan B in place, which is to settle the property and then see if you can add value and then put it back on the market to sell. So that's property trading. What's the typical margin you've seen sort of clients do on a, on a property trade? Yeah, it really depends. I think um, it depends on the deal itself. and But from a percentage point of view margin, I'd say around anywhere from like 5 to 15% mm. uh, from what I've seen. But yeah, like, like I said, it ranges, it varies largely depending on the deal. Yep. So 5 to uh, 15%, what Z is trying to uh, communicate here is if you bought a million dollar flip, you better be making you know, at least 50,000, but you know, you spend the money for renovations, it might be a hundred thousand. You've got your holding costs, could be 50, 60,000, and then your agent's fee, another 30,000. Now that's already 200. So essentially, you buy a property for one mil, you might have to sell it at like 1.26 before you make that 5% margin, right? So that's very, very important. And sometimes when you see the deals on one roof.co.nz talking about like, hey, this guy bought this for 500,000 and sell it for 800. It's not communicating all of the holding costs, the GST, the agent's fee, the actual rental costs. So those are the things that needs to be considered. Now, in terms of how hard is it for property flipping? How much knowledge do you need? Say quite a decent amount. You have to have some form of knowledge. Yeah, you, you need to know how to understand what, what the market value is for each property. You need to understand costings for the renovations. You, you need to understand the, the values, uh, you know, the holding costs and the and the value for the end product. So I would say, you know, it's not for everyone. You do need to get some experience and some, some knowledge. I would say the most important thing that I've seen successful traders do is they understand just a few sub, if they understand a few suburbs really well, and when a deal comes on the market that is well under value, they know straight away. So where would you rank this? Is it higher than double settlement or lower? I would say similar. I would say, you know, round around the A strategy as well, because it still requires a lot of well, decent amount of time finding the deals, renovating the properties. So I'd say, yeah, around the A. Now, I like to uh, counter argument to this because I feel double settlement is riskier, but both of these you're not holding. But double settlement is fast and way easier to execute. It is riskier, but it's easier to execute and you don't have to hold on to the property. You don't have to resell. So if you can execute a double settlement well, I would say it's better, even though it's less money because you don't have to do all the project management and stuff. So I would rank it B. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think... Depends because sometimes the property flipping, you can have a, a bigger margin, right? You should expect a bigger margin because you're putting in more work. So yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against B, but I would, I would say A or B. We'll leave it here for now until we see further strategies. Now, I also like to maybe add one more counter argument to, to see if you would agree it's B. The thing with double settlement is like once you on sell it, you get the deposit back, right? Whereas you might have a longer time frame for trading to have the capital locked into a deal. Whereas double settlement, hey, you found a buyer, you get the deposit back and you can go on the next one. Yeah, I think there's less equity commitment required for for a double settlement. Whereas like property flipping, you you have to at least put in 35% of the deposit and the renovation cost. So yeah, I, I wouldn't argue against that then. <laughs> Let's go. All right. So building on to the next one, 
I think maybe sort of similar price range. Would you say maybe like a regional cash flow strategy might have similar monetary commitment? Probably like lowest lowest equity out of the strategies that we have on screen. Maybe regional cash flow would be the next one that we could look at. So regional cash flow, maybe you tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah. So regional cash flow is essentially you're committing a, a bit of your equity or a bit of your cash into buying a property where you, where you hold long term. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to buy a property where it's at least cash flow neutral, ideally positive, and you're trying to hold it for you know 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It's not going to cost you anything, ideally, to hold. And we're just banking on the, on the capital gains long term. So obviously, there are instances where the rates come down, then you'll have better cash flow. When the rates go up, maybe you don't have as, as good cash flow. But overall, what you're trying to do is you're just trying to hold something for a long period of time. Yeah. So essentially, maybe you have something that's neutral. You don't have to put any money in. And so it's more sustainable, but it's also the foundational strategy. If you look at most majority of property investing books, you know, they don't say like, hey, I bought like land banks or like I bought new builds. You know, they didn't talk about that. They bought, they bought cash flow properties, old do-ups, that's the foundational strategy. And a lot of massive portfolios are built on that. But what are the downsides to this? Well, before we go to the downside, I think um, the way you got to look at property investing is it's like a business as well. And the fundamentals of a business is obviously cash flow, right? So that is why, as you mentioned, most people, solid investors, they, they go for the strategy as well. The downside to this, I would say one of the biggest ones is a lot of the operating costs, like for example, insurance and rates, those are actually similar to like a Auckland property, for mm -hmm. example. Like you might have like uh, a property and the gross yield looks pretty good. You know, it might be, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11%. But then when you're holding a property, the insurance is the same as a 1.5 mil property in Auckland. The second thing is the maintenance, right? Like when you want to change like a like a kitchen or a bathroom, it's the same as, as in Auckland as well. So from a... Gross yield point of view, it's much better. But in reality, the real cash flow, it might not technically be as uh, as what it seems. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the other downside is like once your portfolio is bigger, you need to do so many more transactions in terms of uh, regional cash flow. You've got more projects to manage. So I think that's probably downside once you have more equity and you're looking to really make an impact on your, on your portfolio. But in saying that, actually, there are some big blocks of units that um, clients have bought. So where do we rank this? Is this a sort of S tier or Uber tier? I would say probably in the S. Yeah, S. nice. Yeah. I would agree. So let's move this guy into the S tier. And the next strategy that might be similar is probably a new build strategy, relatively low requirement on deposit. Maybe you can walk us a little bit through on, on new build. What, what does that entail? Yeah. So the new build strategy is essentially uh, you investing in a property that's been, well, it's a new build, obviously. Typically what happens is, you know, you might have developers out there, they buy a, like a large section, maybe 600 squares to 800 squares. They might develop, they might build, you know, five to, you know, eight townhouses on there and they want to sell that to, to the general public, right? So typically it's going to be deposit requirements is a much, much smaller than if you were to go for existing house. So you could even go in as low as 10% deposit for an investment property for a new build. What a new build is essentially you're going to get a new shiny house, but very, very little land. The people that do go for it, usually people that, you know, want very, very little maintenance, very little, um, they want to invest in property, but then they, they sort of don't want to be too hands-on, I would say. Yeah. So I would, so probably build on that as well. Obviously, the massive advantage is low equity required. You've also got the government, you know, saying, hey, you're going to have tax deductibility. Um, it's already healthy home standard. You don't need to do much work. Um, but 
the amount of cash flow required is likely going to be on the higher side. And, and because you've got little land, it means that it's potentially going to not have as much capital gains in the long run. And I think you do kind of need to be in a position where you're willing to, you know, deal with negative cash flow for a little bit, right? Yeah. So I think I've done, done a few numbers for clients lately. So even a new build in Christchurch returning, you know, five and a half percent yield, you're looking at put hundred percent finance at least. You're looking at around at least negative twenty five thousand dollars cash flow. So that's even having the deductibility, you're still negative twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. So I think it's a decent supplementary for a portfolio, but it shouldn't be like the only strategy you have in your portfolio. I think you know if it's like one or two where you're like you know you could see your family having holiday there like in the future. Send your kids there for uni. I don't know. Maybe you have some other use for the new bill. Maybe that's a that's a good way to to plug in into your portfolio. So where would we rank this? Would you say is on par with property trading or sort of like below? Personally, I took it below. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's I think what, what always tell my clients is look, you know, in your buying when looking at the three C's, right? Capital gains, capital cash flow, and capital improvement. Basically, there's no capital improvement. We can't really add value to a new build. Cash flow, as we discussed, not really there. You know, and then capital gains, it's arguable. There's probably not enough stats for us to make a judgment on that. But fundamentally speaking, if you're buying a new build and you know, most of the value is in the actual building rather than the land. I would say my assumption is that it's not going to have as good capital gains as properties that have have land. And I would say the other thing to consider is because there are obviously a lot of new builds. And when we are talking about the tier list here, we're generally generalizing um, overall 80%. Well, 80%, you're going to get that kind of result. Of course, there are going to be new builds where developers are just like so good at it. They're you know, very good with the timeline so they can sell under value, get their money back really quick. They get a, you know, really high return on equity and you're getting a really good product that's built really quickly. So there are also, you know, good new builds out there. We're not saying that there aren't, but generally speaking, um, probably slightly, uh, on the lower side in terms of long term gains. So. Looking at the next strategy, we have uh, potentially maybe we can look at minor dwelling. So minor dwelling, what it is, is like you you buy a, um, it's a mixture, right? You might buy a cash flow uh, property or slightly lower cash flow, but you could add a minor dwelling where you can increase the total yield of a property or the return that you're getting on a property, like one, one and a half, two percent sometimes, uh, because the minor dwelling you know, the return on costs, you're really wanting to look at something that's going to give you 10% plus. Otherwise, you kind of don't want to do it because you can just buy it, right? If, you, if, if you're only getting like 8%, you might as well just buy the property, right? Because now you're getting uh, instant equity if it's an old build um, and you can renovate it to add value. So minor dwelling, you really want a return on your um, actual cost of 10% plus because now you're losing some value on your initial property Right, you're losing some land to the minor dwelling, um, so that's sort of what minor dwelling is. But the upside is um, you have pretty easy to execute. You don't need that much equity to maybe execute it. If you buy something that has a little bit of equity and we can revalue with the minor dwelling built in, we can probably borrow the money. So, anything to add on that? Yeah, I think it's quite dependent on the location as well. Like for example, if you're doing a minor dwelling strategy in a in Auckland, in a place where the land is very, very valuable, it's probably not going to make too much sense. 
because you know that land could be used for like a like a full-size development. But what we're doing there is you, you're putting a small dwelling on there that's going to take up space. So there's an opportunity cost for a minor dwelling in Auckland. But whereas if you go to the regions where the land is not as not as valuable, then I think it makes a bit more sense. So it, it just depends really where, where you're doing it. I would say uh, probably if you're looking at Auckland, you might consider the zoning on the land as well. Obviously, uh, there is what we call the single housing zone. Potentially, most of it's going to change to uh, suburban, which you can build like two-story. But we don't know yet because the government is changing their mind all the time. But um, yeah, de- definitely, if it's you know you build a minor dwelling on a terrace apartment zone land, definitely that would be uh, a waste, and you're not getting as much return as you should. So, where would we place the strategy, like to buy a house to build minor dwelling? I would say between A and B. Personally, I give it the higher side because I feel it's a relatively safe way for mom and dad investors. Um, you can buy a existing old bill with a bit of equity. And if, you know, if you're thinking day one that it's got enough land for a minor dwelling, probably have enough land for a whole house, really. So you are actually going into a deal that you know, already has some long-term value, even if you don't buy something that you can build a minor dwelling on straight away. Thinking about the next strategy, um, how about we look at house hacking and home and income? So this is what David did. Actually, David used to work for us, one of our advisors. He decided with a couple of mates, you know what, we're just going to buy a house where we can have as much income as possible and then we can exit it because as owner-occupy, owner once they build up with more equity, if they buy under value, they exit that property and they'll have tax-free gains because it's their own occupied. Have you seen much uh, house hacking strategy in sort of your last six months? Not too much personally in the last six months. Yeah, I mean, home and income strategy, it, it's, it's never never terrible. You know, you've got another source of income that helps you sort of pay with the mortgage. What I like to say is if, if you're a first-home buyer, it makes a lot of sense to buy a home and income because you're essentially buying two properties, right? You're buying your own occupied and an investment and you only need to put in 20% deposit. So it's not a terrible strategy at all. But obviously, you know, you need to compromise a little bit when it comes to the quality of the house because we're spending more money. We're spreading our money into two properties rather than in one. Oh, and I just thinking about house hacking because there were two cases where I was super proud of the client um, and the result that they got. One was actually a, a church pastor. You know, they were thinking about like, you know, they don't have that much income, but they don't mind having something a bit older. And as long as, you know, they don't have to commit too much, because obviously you have to have that flexibility as a, as a pastor doing that kind of work, that line of work. So we ended up buying this property that has three dwellings on it. Most banks came back to us saying like, hey, you know, realistically, this is an investment property. You've got two minor dwellings. You've essentially got three incomes, right? If you rented the whole thing out. Uh, and miraculously, we had one bank come back and gave us 80% on that. And we, I was just stoked for the client because that's like house hacking at its finest because now you've got pretty much a free mortgage. Like you don't have to pay for it because you've got two extra income coming in. And then the other one was... um similar situation they're not uh like a like a pastor but they were doing a lot of um not-for-profit things maybe like just good things happen to those people but um we got a, a seven bedroom home you know two of them is a minor dwelling 
uh, in a minor dwelling and in five bedroom. And basically him and his sister, they rented out five bedrooms and we worked out the mass at the time. I remember it was cash flow positive on day one. So we bought like a 1.6 mil property because they had some in, in, inheritance and they didn't have to pay for the mortgage. So I was really, really stoked with the results. So where would we place the strategy, you reckon? Hmm. I would around A or B personally. I think it also depends on the individual. Sometimes it could even be a S. Just mm. it just really depends. Eh? Now, why would I put in an S? Is because if you look at investment properties, if you buy it as investment, first of all, you have to put thirty five percent deposit. Secondly, if you change your mind, you're like, I don't want this property anymore. I need my money back. You sell it. Any capital gains. You have to obviously pay tax, but house hacking strategy, you're buying it as a house that you're going to live in. And so that's the advantage of buying an own occupied where if you built equity, you're not necessarily having to pay tax on it. Now, don't quote me. I'm not an accountant, but my understanding of the tax policy is that if you're living in it, you buy an own occupied, then potentially you're not having to pay tax, you know, up on sales. So that's why I think for a investor sort of first home buyer with that mindset of, you know what, this is my first home and it's not my last one. It's a tier strategy. We can obviously change that if you, if you think otherwise. I think, I think it's, yeah, I think it makes sense. There, I mean, it is not not not, not going to apply to everyone. Obviously, like if you're already an established investor, then this is not really going to be a, a strategy that's going to work for you. But yeah, it just depends where you are in your investment journey. If you're starting out, then this is definitely an S. I would say the next one is a central do up strategy. So this is looking at your units or like cross lease property, or you know sometimes it's freehold. Maybe houses that built long time ago where the floor plan is not well utilized. You could potentially add an ensuite. You can potentially um, change uh, the kitchen into a extra bedroom and then just have an open plan area for the lounge. And this way you are generating both equity and income on the rental. This strategy in central, the yield is not going to look as good as say, for example, a minor dwelling strategy or regional cash flow. However, if you buy the property, if you do it well, you are getting increasing yield and increasing equity. Anything to add on that? Yeah, I think you've covered everything uh, there. But with that strategy, it also depends on what your intention is. If you're looking at holding that property or if you're looking at flipping it, what are we assuming here, Landon? Are we assuming that we're holding it? or? So I would say we are assuming that we are holding it as, as part of your portfolio because at the end of the day, like the goal is to hold the, the property. Yeah, I would say in that case, then I would place that in a B or C personally. My reasoning behind that is... Even though you, you do this property, you might create some equity. The cash flow on these properties are going to be are likely going to be very terrible. Cheapest unit you're going to buy is maybe six hundred thousand dollars or so. If you're lucky, maybe a little bit cheaper. But then the end product, yes, you might get some equity. But how much rent can you actually receive from it? If you get anything above like a five percent yield, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> but I don't think that's quite likely in in Auckland. And the reason why I would put it above new build is because the fact that you can create the equity. So the strategy forces you to buy something that's well below market value and you're adding value by uh, renovating it or, you know, utilizing the floor space. So that's why I would rank it slightly above new build, uh, whereas new build, you're more restricted to just buying really well and then looking for capital gains in the long run. 
But so then the argument is that you're not going to have the uh, tax deductibility, right? That is 100% right. So you are going to have, you know, you have to fork out a bit more to compensate for that. And saying that you could still look for social housing contract. And then also you're likely to have more yield than a new build. So those are the things that you have going for it. In terms of a holding strategy, especially in this current interest rate environment, sort of like below the the best strategy just because, you know, it's yeah, it's not going to be cash flow positive. The next one we could look at is multi-unit. So this is buying properties that uh, have multiple dwelling. And Ziyang has a couple of these. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the strategy. Yeah. So multi-units is essentially what you chase. It's pretty similar to the regional cash flow strategy. However, you're sort of, you know, in one transaction, you're buying a lot more than one. You might buy four units on one title maybe five, maybe six. Basically, you're chasing the, the yields for these. You, you want sort of the you know, minimum eight, nine, ideally maybe 10 plus. And that's what you're chasing for these sort of, um, these sort of properties. You're going to find these in, in the regions all over North Island, just not in the big cities, obviously not Wellington, Auckland or Hamilton, but everywhere else you'll be able to find these sort of properties. So cash flow we got, capital gains, decent. We're still looking in major cities. Capital improvement, yeah, it's definitely there because with capital improvement, right, it's about the value. You're trying to increase the value by maybe making some renos in the properties. A lot of these properties, the actual value of these properties are derived from the cash flow it's generating. It's quite likely you could do a bit of renovations on these properties. You might be charging, let's just say like my example that I bought in Tamaru, that was renting out for 200 and $20 per week for each unit when I first bought it. And I spent maybe around $20,000 on each of the units. There were six units. And now we're renting it out for around $320 a week for each of them. When the valuer comes in, the initial valuation that the valuer did, they based the valuation on the the cap, the cap rate. So essentially the, the yield of the property. So when they, if they do one again now, they will still base the, cap, the valuation of the cap rate. And because now the, the income has increased significantly, they will basically look at the yeah that new income and give us a new valuation. So there's still a lot of scope for, for capital improvement on these properties, I would say. Yeah. So essentially you've got everything in yeah. these in these property. And once what's really interesting as a insight to to buying these is because uh when when you buy them, a lot of people, you know, they they don't really need to sell it. It's cash flow positive. They they they're getting good rent. Um they had it for a few years and the reason why they're getting rid of it is like, okay, they just can't be bothered anymore. They're probably cashing up. And so I would say a good 70, 70% of these come run down because they just can't be bothered. They're not looking for maximum dollar. So you, you have a bit of margin in there. So where would you rank this? I would say either Uber or S. It also depends on where you are. But like if you're an investor who has a lot of equity, then I would say it's definitely Uber because you don't have to commit while well, you're committing a smaller small portion of your equity to buy this. It doesn't require you to put in any cash week on week. So I'd say, you know, overall, Uber, what do you think? I definitely agree because if I go, okay, well, if we put regional cash flow at S, house hacking at S, multi-units has to be Uber. Like that strategy is better because if you look at the numbers on paper, multi-unit, if you look at cash on cash return, if you look at return on equity, look at your gross yield, all the numbers will be stronger than everything that's below it and because with the numbers that are stronger even though you might need a higher deposit at the bank you can attract capital easier because the numbers are stronger so that's why i would say uh, uber now looking at the last two and i want to 
perhaps maybe just end on these as a one strategy, right? We've got the land banking and subdividing to hold, right? Land banking is essentially buying central city properties where the land is subdividable. And so we're looking for something that's pretty much subdividable straight away and you can build multiple houses on it and you're just potentially just holding the property or you're holding it so that you can develop in the future or you can just buy something that you develop to build and then sell it. That's the other type of strategy. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about like the stats on these. Like what what's the opportunity here, Z? Yeah. If we look at the subdivide to build strategy first, usually, you know, like you're committing a good chunk of equity to hold a property if you're just land banking. But obviously if you're subdividing to build, usually, you know, you're chasing that, you know, 20 20 to 30% margin, right? So you know, it's going to cost you, let's say it's going to cost you $4 million, right? To complete a subdivision. You know, you might want to have at least 800,000 to maybe $1.2 million of, of gross profit. That's a big commitment. It does require a lot of equity. It does come at risk as well, obviously, because there's a lot of investors out there, a lot of developers out there who actually go for the strategy, but you know, because of the market or because they haven't calculated the, the numbers, they don't have that margin of safety. They actually might not actually make too much money. You're locking up a significant amount of your, amount of your equity into these, these sort of deals. So I would say for an experienced developer, this would be a very good strategy. If you're new to the game, like, yeah, it depends on the deal, obviously. But if Ziang brings you the deal and like, man, this you need to settle this, then you just sign the contract. <laughs> uh, that's what happened to uh, a few of his mates. <laughs> um, so land banking and subdividing to hold, I would say, you know, if you can have the mindset of holding it long-term, I definitely probably rank it higher, uh, you know, near the S tier because you've got really good capital improvement. Although uh, where it's lacking is like, you need to buy a good piece of land. And you need to buy well. Subdivide to build, I think, you know, because your margins can erode so quickly if you don't do your calculations well, the expert knowledge required to do this well is significantly higher. Uh, but the reward is massive because, you know, in a land banking strategy, uh, your capital gains is multiplied based on how many future dwellings you can build, right? Listen to this again. It's like if you buy a normal property, right? You, you got those 6-7% gains, right? But a land bank, you have a multiplier effect, right? When we play games, like, you know, when we look at damage multipliers, like there's the thing that you always look for. And land banks have one of the best multipliers because the more dwellings you can you can build on it, the more capital gains you're going to get long-term. And, and if there's a unitary plan change like Auckland had, that's why there were so many properties that doubled in value because the multiplier effects just like went from two-story to four-story. It's like how many more floor areas can you build, right? Massive. The opportunity is potentially massive, but you do need to understand uh, the risk, which is like you don't have much cash flow, you have to have a lot of cash flow, and you need to understand, have some expert knowledge around, you know, what is good subdividable property. That sort of concludes our tier list. Anything you would change after we have put all of these up? I, I personally, with subdividing to hold, I'm not a huge fan of it. Mm. So you would uh, derank them? I probably would derank that just because, um, you know, like if you're subdividing to hold, the amount of equity you're committing to this is substantial. What's the true yield you're going to get? Like, for example, if, if you compare a multi-unit strategy to a subdivide to hold, right? Like a multi-unit strategy, you might get 10%, 10, 11% yield potentially. Subdivide to hold, you're looking at, you know, the yield on cost could be 
anywhere from you know four to six percent at the very most. That's such a good point. So that's such a good point that Ziang has made here because when I'm talking about land banking, I'm just talking about okay, you're banking a piece of land that you hold long term and you can survive the negative cash flow. The downside is you have to put in way more cash to make it cash flow neutral. And the upside is obviously the multiplier effect. But the downside to subdividing to hold is not that good of a strategy because the yield is usually way lower than the, the ST and the Uber tier strategy that we have above it. So, you know, we have all these dreams about like, you know, oh, we're going to have this piece of land and build houses in the future. But then the yield is so low, you actually want to maybe take advantage of the of the Brightline test to make it worthwhile. I guess what would allow it to be pulled up to the next rank is just the fact that it's a very good capital gains short strategy uh, because you, you're getting a lot more equity. But long-term hold, uh, maybe you wouldn't subdivide to hold. You probably subdivide hold for a while until... You know, your accountant's like, hey, you can sell these without tax. Then you've got a really, really solid strategy there. So there you have it, folks. I'm going to keep today's uh, podcast in there. And hopefully you have found some good value. And of course, if you guys want to learn more, subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out our Leverage Addict podcast. And if you have found value today, please share this episode with just one person that you think will learn something from it as well. Thank you for listening. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you, Ziang. Thank you, Blanton. Thank you.